Welcome to yet another episode of the New Ventures podcast. Our guest for today is Adrian Bukmanis, founder of Veridian Refrigerant Management. And your host is Sanjoy Sanyal. I am the founder of a boutique clean tech consulting firm, Regain Paradise, and also a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. Thank you, Sanjoy. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation to, to speak with you today. You know, before we start business, I have to ask you this question. You started your first company in Singapore, and I was looking at your profile after traveling the whole world. What is it about your journey and your first impressions of Singapore? Certainly, yeah, I've been very fortunate to have traveled widely. I'm a little bit more, um, let's say, aware of the impact now, but before I came to Singapore, I had the opportunity to see a lot of places, and I've been very grateful for that. Maybe just as a little bit of backstory, I grew up in Australia and was originally working in, in IT and data communications. I did like a lot of Australians and spent some time in the UK and London. I worked for some companies there. I had the opportunity to work with Lehman Brothers before they went bust, which was really interesting, uh, interesting time working in IT. But I also uh, was looking for a bit of a change and, and I ended up working in motorsport, of all things. And I'm also aware of the the correlation between the climate and, and motorsport. But at the time, it was a, a rare opportunity. I was looking after uh, customers uh, across a lot of the world in the Middle East, the Balkans, Asia and China. So I, I got to see a lot of places off the normal tourist trail. I got to meet lots of interesting people. And it was during that time that I began to understand the how data is used to improve performance of, of systems. Um, there's a lot of uh, data analysis that happens in motorsport. And that's partly what led me to, to Singapore and to start the business there. But Singapore has been, been fantastic. It's a great cultural mix. It's a great place to start a business and uh, been really fortunate to spend uh, over a decade or close to a decade there. Wonderful. Which brings me to the question about Teal, the company that you founded in Singapore. How does it use data and in what context? Mm -hmm. So the, the primary motivation for, for Teal was to improve energy performance. So reducing emissions and reducing costs by monitoring energy and building systems. And maybe a good way to look at that or to think of it is, is also to use that motorsport analogy is even if you don't follow Formula One, maybe you've seen you know, photos of pit stop and you'll see lots of people looking at screens of data and there's engineers and there's team principals and, and even the drivers. It's very much a data orientated process and it's a simple formula of taking data plus good engineering um, equals high performance. And that's kind of what we started doing at, at Teal is to apply that to, to buildings and industrial facilities. And one way that people look at that is to go and develop new software. But we started almost uh, you know, early uh, 20, 2011. But even at that time, there was still lots of really good software around globally. It's just that there perhaps weren't the skills or the engineering side to, to implement it properly. So that's what we focused on. So taking software tools that were available, um, but bringing the skill set to apply them for commercial and industrial properties with the intention of improving energy efficiency and driving energy retrofits. And that was the whole foundation of Teal and, and still what we focus on today. That's great. Obviously, one of the most interesting things to talk about is how your customers use your product. So I know you have customers in various segments, educational institutions, industrial facilities. Can you give us a few examples? 
Certainly. We've been really fortunate to work across lots and lots of different sectors. For me, industrial has always been the more interesting because you tend to come across lots and lots of different types of systems from compressed air to, to boilers to you know, processing lines and, and so forth. But where we've often made the biggest difference is by finding customers that are ready to act on the findings. And I think this is a really key thing is because if the customers aren't prepared to act on what is discovered by the software or even through a traditional energy audit system, then you might end up with a really nice technology project. You might end up with nice visualizations and dashboards and metrics. But at the end, if the client isn't willing to move forward with the recommendations, then you're really not getting the, the maximum benefit from the process. So it maybe took a little bit of time to come to that realization, but it's a really important one. So we, in the end, we tried to find those, those types of customers that understood that it, it's a tool. It's a tool in the toolbox for moving forward and driving you know, whether it's deep retrofit projects or, or other types of energy efficiency projects. But those, those types of, of customers were the ones that we really enjoyed working with. But for me personally, as I said, industrial systems, compressed air systems, they were, they were, they were some of the, the systems I really liked to work with uh, down the years. And there were some customers where we delivered really large energy savings in short periods of time, six to 12 months. But there was also other customers that would use it just for, for visibility or transparency for you know, contractor management or emissions reporting or supporting ISO 50001, for example. So there's lots of different ways in which clients would uh, get value from, from the type of work that we would do. I think the point that you mentioned about customers being really ready to use the product is a very important in these type of technology solutions. Customers really need to be vested into the deployment. But I was also curious to understand, you know, when you say industrial facility, are they in Singapore or are they in the region? Can you give us a few examples? So a bit of both. A lot of the work we did was in Singapore. But for example, we did manufacturing facilities in Malaysia and Thailand, breweries in Vietnam, even as far afield as, as Africa, did a project in, in Ghana. Singapore was fantastic because you've got such a compact location with lots of lots of facilities there, but certainly I enjoyed uh, you know, visiting some of the other locations in, in Southeast Asia, especially. Right. And for some of our audience who are not necessarily that familiar with Singapore, maybe you can just comment a little bit on Singapore's industrial base, because people may not really get that yeah, it's a good point as well, because even if you visited Singapore as a tourist, you've probably gone from the airport to the city and everything is tree-lined and, uh, let's say, uh, tourist-friendly. But perhaps on the other side of Singapore, you've got uh, Jurong Island, which is you know one of the world's biggest refining and petrochemical uh, facilities. Further afield, you've got all types of manufacturing from you know, heavy industry through to uh, semiconductors through to even you know, solar panel uh, manufacturing, through to seafood processing. You've got everything. <laughs> There's all sorts of really interesting industrial facilities within Singapore. And, and that was something that I really enjoyed because even for a small location, there is lots and lots of different types of you know, facilities. And, and I was really uh, enjoyed going to, to visit uh, as many of those as I could. Exactly. And now you are on to your another venture, which is deep diving into one specific use of energy that is in cooling. Perhaps before we talk about that business, it'd be nice if you could explain the importance of this topic in global warming. Uh, certainly. And it's a, a big, broad, all-encompassing topic. 
I think even if most people were to look around, they would start to identify places where refrigerants are used, but maybe some that they might not think about. Um, but even just for headline numbers, the cooling sector is generally accepted to be responsible for 7% of global emissions. That's both energy and also the refrigerant gases. The refrigerant gases themselves are maybe 2 to 3% of global emissions annually. But one of the important things is they're the fastest growing source of greenhouse gas emissions. And, and most people are aware of carbon dioxide. Some people are aware of methane, which is also important. But this group called fluorinated gases or F gases, of which refrigerants are the largest contributor, are the fastest grower. They're the fastest growing sector. So that's one thing that, that makes them important. But they're also everywhere. They're in uh, obviously your refrigerator, but also in your vehicle. They're in your the data center, the telecoms towers, you know, obviously the cold chain, you know, refrigerated shipping containers, there's refrigerants everywhere throughout the global supply chains in most people's premises, in their offices. They're, they're absolutely everywhere, but most people don't get to see them. So they're, they're invisible gas that's doing lots of work in cooling, sometimes heating as well in heat pumps. But the problem is they, they leak, and when they leak, they go to the atmosphere. And most refrigerants are like carbon dioxide on steroids. There are, many of the refrigerants are about a thousand times more potent than carbon dioxide as, as a, a greenhouse gas. They're what's called a super pollutant. They don't last in the atmosphere as long as carbon dioxide, but they, they contribute a significant amount to, to global warming and they get very little attention. One of the interesting things is if anybody is familiar with uh, Project Drawdown, which was a, a set of uh, solutions or climate solutions released a few years ago, it was the number one climate solution. And this was in front of wind and solar and preserving tropical forests and, and, and so forth and all these other really important things. But it just goes to show how important, but also how little attention it's, it's received since then. So it's, it's a really important one. And obviously, there's a bit of a vicious cycle in that I think we're seeing it in the news uh, at the moment is that as the climate warms, the need for cooling increases. But by increasing our cooling equipment, so air conditioners and so forth, we use more energy, we release more refrigerants into the atmosphere, and, and it creates a, a vicious cycle. Uh, and that's why I believe it, it needs more attention. So I'm, let's say doubling down and focusing on that particular sector at the moment. Right. I really like the point that you mentioned about refrigerant gases being carbon dioxide and steroids, because that's exactly what it is. I mean, if they live in the atmosphere for a relatively shorter period, but the harm they can cause in terms of global warming potential is far larger. And I did not know that actually it is the top uh, solution that was proposed by Project Drawdown. That's a very important point as well. You know, one thing that you mentioned is that, you know, refrigerants are everywhere. So perhaps I would like to start asking about your business by asking who will be your target customers? Yeah, having said that, because they're everywhere, you, you could certainly suggest that it's important for all businesses to consider it. But certainly there's more that are, let's say, our initial targets. And when we look at the benefits of managing refrigerants specifically, obviously emissions is one of those, but there's also cost. There's a safety aspect because some refrigerants are you know, toxic. Um, so there's a safety uh, element to that. There's the end product. If you're processing food or, or concerned about food waste, then that's one other element. And I guess the risk management goes across all of those. So, so we're looking for, let's say, specific customers that are aware of those, those challenges, but also so those benefits. 
We're also looking at customers that have potentially high leak rates. So good examples of that are, say, supermarkets, because they, they have long, let's say, refrigerant lines, they're field manufactured, so they, they tend to leak quite significantly. But also, say, companies operating large vehicle fleets. I think even uh, most of us, uh, certainly being in tropics or warmer climates, would have experienced the uh, the car air conditioning not performing as well as it should. So you take it to the garage and normally they put some more refrigerant in and off you go again without a second thought to the refrigerant gas that's just leaked to the atmosphere. And with, you know, billions of cars on the road, that's uh, that's something that happens quite a lot. So the transportation fleets are also another really big source of, of refrigerant emissions. So in short, we're, we're looking at lots of different sectors at the moment. But we're also targeting those that specifically looking at uh, net zero or have net zero targets, because at the end of the day, zero is zero. So even if refrigerant gases are maybe only two to three percent of, you know, let's say a company's emissions, is if we're getting to zero, then you have to. There's no choice to also address those two to three percent. So they're the type of, of clients we're working with. And what type of services would you be providing these clients? So we're working across let's say three primary areas. And the first one's a little bit boring in that it's a, um, you can think of it just like basic accounting. And anybody, I guess, that's worked in business understands the principle of accounting. And even though you might not like to do it and it's not your first priority, it's a really important element. So the first thing is to account for all the refrigerant that's within your care or under your operation. So that's understanding the assets that it's installed in, whether that's the air conditioners, the vehicles, the refrigerated shipping containers. So tracking those assets, tracking how much refrigerant is in them and how much is leaking. And we use software to do that. So there's a technology that underpins that process, but it's a service as well as a, a technology offering. So we call it refrigerant accounting or, or refrigerant management. The second aspect is looking at uh, mitigating leaks. So, so once you're accounting for your refrigerant, you generally start to understand which systems are leaking. And then we can also apply technology to assist with uh, leaking systems. One of those that we use is a uh, climate check, which has been uh, described previously on the podcast. And that's a, a, an important tool for monitoring and optimizing systems and also for detecting leaks. We can also use uh, data analytics. We do that with Teal looking at rules-based and also machine learning-based uh, detection of, of leak conditions. But the other thing is when systems leak, they also use more energy. If you just take a simple rule of thumb that if you lose half the refrigerant in a system, you generally lose half the energy performance. So you consume twice as much energy potentially. If you lose refrigerant, you also have increased uh, wear on the system and you have higher maintenance costs. So by mitigating leaks, you're saving money from refrigerant, from the energy use, from the maintenance. You're reducing, obviously, the safety risks, the compliance risks. There was an example, certainly in, in some locations where you've got leaks, there's certain penalties around those as well. So there's, there's lots of benefits for, for keeping the leaks under control. And the third area is around advisory and training. So we work with companies to help mitigate those risks, both from, let's say, an operating standpoint, but also from a competitive. I mentioned um, in the US, they have a program called uh, called Green Chill. So there's certain uh, supermarkets that are using, let's say, low polluting uh, refrigerants, and they have a competitive advantage to, to other, other retailers. So we help uh, guide customers on that journey. 
There's lots of regulation being discussed and some being implemented. So we help advise customers on that to stay ahead of the curve so that they can mitigate those, those risks. So they're saving money and also mitigating risks. As part of that, we're also training and building capabilities because that's an important part. If we're going to, to move the needle, we also need skills. So we're working on improving the skills for technicians to both be aware of the impact, but also being able to use uh, uh, natural refrigerants and, and low polluting refrigerants as well. That's a, a very important aspect. Uh, thank you. I think we will get into a fair amount of detail here. Perhaps the best thing to place to start is to just get rid of some terminology. One of the terminologies that many of our audience would be familiar with is this term called HFCs. Then you have used the word natural refrigerants mm -hmm. or low polluting refrigerants. Perhaps if you can help us understand the sort of entire field of refrigerants. Certainly, there's lots of avenues to take, but I'll, I'll try and keep it as, as simple as possible. I guess a, a number of people might be familiar with the problem that surrounded the ozone layer, and this was going back in, let's say, the 80s and 90s, around refrigerants called the CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons, what we call sort of the second generation of refrigerants. And they came under the... They, they were effectively banned and, and replaced by HFCs, as you mentioned, hydrofluorocarbons. And they don't impact the ozone layer, but they, they have a problem with global warming. They, they basically absorb heat and, and they contribute to, to the warming of the atmosphere. So HFCs are a problem. And so now there's this fourth generation of refrigerants. And some of these refrigerants are still man-made, what we call synthetic refrigerants. And even though they have a low global warming potential, even though they might not deplete the ozone layer, they perhaps have other environmental impacts. They still are man-made chemicals. Some of them potentially fall into what are called uh, PFAs or, or forever chemicals, which potentially build up in our drinking water. So by continuing to use synthetic man-made refrigerants, we're still likely to have a problem going forward. So there is a group of refrigerants called natural refrigerants, which okay, aren't perfect, but they are found naturally um, in, in our environment. So those are air and water you can use as refrigerants. Interestingly enough, carbon dioxide you can use as a refrigerant and it's uh, actually getting more and more common. Propane is also another refrigerant that is, is becoming more common. And, and most people would probably not know, but uh, most refrigerators now built in, in say Europe, for example, use butane as been for for many years now so they're generally what we refer to as as natural refrigerants ammonia is, is another one there as well so all of them have some particular drawbacks some are flammable some are, are slightly toxic but because they're generally found in nature we're not expecting to see the problems we have with the refrigerants uh, you know going forward so at the moment they're generally accepted as being our best bet and the most future-proof set of refrigerants that we can use and that's very useful. So then the other thing that I wanted to get down is the way you provide the services. So I think, and it's particular the point that you made about using software. For creating inventory, you have a software application. And for um, managing leaks, you use a software of Climate Check. Obviously, you've been hearing our podcast uh, very closely because you know, that's uh, a European company. Yeah, British. I'm very keen to understand, you know, you mentioned something at the beginning of the podcast that you used software developed by others and applied it to problems. Do you sort of bring the same philosophy here or did you have to develop new software? 
Yes, I still tend to follow that, that approach. I come from an IT background, so you know, part of me thinks, well, I think what's really struck me is there is lots of software out there and there's you know, lots of companies that are just focused on that. But there's also really, really underserved need for companies that know how to implement it and can also interpret it and know how to apply it to get the results. Because the software companies themselves, that's not necessarily their strength. And maybe traditional engineering companies don't have a background in IT and technology. For me, I still think that's a reasonable and an effective approach. The thing is, it, is it perhaps doesn't get all the, the attention because, you know, everybody likes to, to see a new app or a new piece of software written and, you know, investors get excited and, and all the rest of it. But I think if you take a step back and you look at the urgency that we have now and the speed at which we need to, to get things done, yeah, we need to use the tools that are around us now. And there's lots of tools. There's lots of great software out there. There's lots of great best practice that's already been developed. We just need to do it. Um, that's really my, uh, my philosophy at the moment. And that's an important point because even in so-called enterprise software and in the world you came from earlier on, there are very large companies which just specialize in implementing software. They, they are implementation partners of the, of the software product companies. And that's mm -hmm. a very reasonable way to build a business. Yeah, and it's maybe not always the most uh, exciting way, but I, I think it's also very effective. And, and as I said, I think when you're talking about urgency, uh, I think that's, that's the way to get things done. Right. And then the third topic, which I wanted to get down into a little bit of detail is, you know, what is driving the market? For example, many of our audience would have heard of this term called Kigali Protocol, which basically is a step forward for withdrawing of HFCs from the market. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. And so how important are those international collaborations? They're, they're absolutely vital, but at the same time, they're not enough on their own. So maybe just to take a step back. So the just for clarity, the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol is specifically designed to phase down HFC production and consumption over, over the next uh, 20, 20 or so years, 20, 30 years. And it's without it, we'd be on a much worse path. That, that's absolutely a given. So the fact that it's been put together uh, is, is a great start. The thing is, at the moment, is not every country has signed up to it or ratified it. About 130 131 have now have now ratified it, but we need everybody on board. Um, but that's certainly one of one of the big drivers because that's changing the way manufacturers and producers, the type of gases that they're going to put onto the market. Um, and China has recently come on board, so that's that's a great step because they're they're one of the biggest producers. So Kigali Amendment is one of those. But we're also seeing that then you know, trickle down. And in the EU, you've got the EUF gas regulations, which is now there's been some, some new proposals just come out, which is even more aggressive in terms of phasing out HFC refrigerants. The US has started implementing through the AIM Act, which is really important. And even just a couple of weeks ago, the uh, Securities Exchange Commission in the US uh, brought out some proposals for companies suggesting they, or, or basically recommending that they disclose all their greenhouse gases, including HFCs and refrigerants. So that would be a game changer in the US. So all of that is starting to trickle down. And, and we know in Singapore, they're starting to look at HFCs more seriously now as well. So these are all starting to build up and we're starting to see more, you know, sort of attention being paid to that. It also introduces lots of other interesting, you could say, side effects. Uh, one of the things that's been seen in Europe 
with the FGAS regulations is as you start to reduce the quotas, so that's the amount of HFCs that are available on the market, is obviously the scarcity, they become more scarce. So that drives a, an illegal trade. And there's some estimates at the moment that maybe 20 to 30% of the refrigerants in Europe are smuggled in illegally to get around the quotas. And obviously those emissions don't get accounted for either. So, you know, there's, there's implications around that. Um, they're starting to look at ways of sort of closing off those avenues, but it's still very much a problem today. So, so even with the regulation, there are other considerations and, and things that need to be taken into account. And just one you know, final point on that is there was a recent paper that came out that said even with you know, the, the Kigali framework, it's still not enough to reach the 1.5 degree targets that we're looking at under the Paris Agreement. So it's a good start and it's really aggressive, but it's still not enough. So again, this, this is why we're really pushing hard on this particular subject. So... When you're talking about refrigerants getting smuggled in, my automatic reaction is maybe there's not sufficient capacity of producing those natural refrigerants that you are talking about. Is that the cause or what is the problem? Yeah, that's a really good point as well. Yes, there are alternatives. That's the whole idea behind the reductions is that by making HFCs more scarce, it should drive the transition to other types of refrigerants. Yeah, that's the, the premise for the regulations. And in principle, it works. However, there's a lot of status quo or certain companies have just been dealing with HFCs for the last decade. You know, that's the way all their systems and their employees are trained and so forth. So, so it's easier to continue with, you know, with the way you've done things uh, in the past. I, th I think the EU did recognize this early on. They put a lot of emphasis on trying to train, you know, technicians in, in using, you know, natural and alternative refrigerants. And, and generally, the, they have trained a lot of people but it's still not enough. That's the, the short answer. So, which is why as part of our service offering, training is a critical component as well, is that if we are going to shift away from HFCs, if we're going to get around these problems with illegal refrigerants, there has to be an aware, capable, well-skilled workforce as well. And I know, I know that's easier to, to say than perhaps do, but, but it is something that yeah, I think, I think most uh, people are aware of and, and something that we are trying to influence as well. Good point. But, you know, moving away from sort of international policy dialogue to your customers, it seems to me that your customers are being driven to come to you from three different standpoints. One is that they could be in a geography which is being regulated, for example, the European Union, or they could be having their net zero targets, zero is zero, as you said, but it also seemed to me, because you said something earlier, that as you reduce leaks, you reduce energy use. So there is an economic benefit as well. So I'm just trying to figure out among these three drivers, or maybe there are others, which one is the most important one? For me, I like to think it's emissions and those that are driven by reducing emissions without being pushed. So they're doing it for the right reasons, because if you're just doing it for compliance, you know, if your heart's not really in it, yeah, for, for sure, you know, we'll, we'll work with those types of clients. But it, it comes back to what I said earlier as well, when dealing with, you know, energy efficiency and teal as well, you're more effective with customers that really understand and really want to get things done, that are willing to, to put the resources, to do the hard yards, to make a difference, because it's tough. You know, and once you've done the low-hanging fruit, energy efficiency is tough. And managing refrigerants, it's not on many people's radar. You've got assets all over the place. You know, nobody knows what's what's in these assets. The awareness is low. 
So it's difficult, but if, if a company is genuine in hitting a net zero target, if they're aligned with the science, you know, if they're not just relying on offsets to, to buy them time, then they're the type of companies we, we want to work with because it, we can genuinely make a difference with those types of organizations. Let me ask you this question from an investor's perspective. And I'm wondering, you know, where should investors think of targeting their money? In the upgradation of the facilities of your customers, or they should be targeting the money in the upgradation of the manufacturing facilities of the new types of refrigerants? Perhaps both, right? Yes. And a good question. For sure, it's happening on a couple of fronts. I could also point out some work that, uh, say, for example, QIZ in, in Germany are doing, the ProClima team, you know, they're helping manufacturers to change their production lines across, you know, to natural refrigerants. So they're already working on those types of, you know, those types of avenues. Now, it also needs the market to shift. It needs consumers to be aware and to say, okay, I have a choice of two air conditioners, which one am I going to, to purchase? And if you don't know anything about refrigerants or the impact, probably buy the one with you know, the lowest cost. So yes, yeah, so it's got to come you know, both from, from that side. But the big gap at the moment when it comes to investment is what to do with these refrigerants at the end of life. So yeah, we can invest in uh, mitigating leaks. We can invest in managing them while they're under our care. Problem is a refrigerant that gets produced today goes into a system that maybe runs for 10 to 15 years. So in 15 years time, I think we can all agree that this particular problem is going to be even bigger than we have today. And we've got all this refrigerant and there's millions and millions of tons of it out there, what we call refrigerant banks, and it can't go into the atmosphere. So something has to happen with it and who's going to pay for it. <laughs> that's, that's the big challenge at the moment. And some of it you can deal with through, through offsets. And, and generally, I'm not a fan of offsets, but I think that's maybe one area where it can serve a purpose or, or credits for disposing of refrigerants at end of life, because at the moment, there's very few financial levers to use. Today, you can reclaim, you can reuse those refrigerants, which is fair enough, as long as you've got systems to put them into. But again, in 10 years, hopefully we've moved you know, sufficiently across to naturals and low polluting refrigerants. So the refrigerants we've got today are not going to be able to re be reused again in, in 10 years. So we have to you know, destroy them basically. So, so that's, that's a big challenge that's going to come. And it's one we're giving a lot of thought to. It's one that requires investment and resources. The processes and the technologies to deal with it are there today. You know, we know how to process it. It's just you know, nobody wants to pay for it. That's, that's the challenge. Largely because there are no economic benefits. Yes. As I said, today you can reuse them. So if you extract refrigerant from a system today, clean it up, put it back into use because you, you know that, okay, there's still going to be systems running for another 10 years. But I think in another 10 years or so, that option is not going to be there. So the one financial lever that exists today, which is sort of resell it, reusing the refrigerant, recycling it effectively, is not going to be there in, in 10 years or so. So it's going to become a, a straight up polluters pay you know, type, type problem. In some places, you know, they're, they're tackling it. Uh, I'll sort of mention New Zealand, for example, you know, they've got fees so that when the refrigerant is sold, there's, there's ways of recouping or let's say that the money goes into, into dealing with the refrigerant at end of life. But those types of systems are, or, or those types of frameworks are few and far between. So we need more of those type of manufacturer responsibility or other financial levers to, to tackle that particular problem. Right. I'm thinking again of your customers and I'm just thinking of 
you know, what you did at Teal and then what are you going to do here? So one of the things that you probably helped your customers invest in energy efficiency is that they saw the data about the saving that became sort of transparent, clear, easy to measure, and then they could invest from their own books or they could perhaps get third-party investors. I'm guessing that was the case. Yes. But how do you see that play out in this new industry? Obviously, you know, they will start measuring things. And then at some point you would say, okay, no, we need to replace this type of refrigerant. Do you see companies being able to sort of make those investments themselves? Potentially, yes, for sure. As I mentioned, you know, managing refrigerants, there's a big cost benefit, you know, just in terms of the refrigerant replacement costs, the energy costs, but then of course the risk costs around safety and compliance, you know, penalties and so forth. So you could still suggest it would pay for itself through those particular mechanisms. I think the other area that's that's interesting is to actually take a step back and think about what's actually needed. Rethink the cooling process. Is, is What are we actually trying to achieve? Is there a better way to recover thermal energy, for example? Do we actually need this particular piece of cooling equipment in the first place? Can we do it with a district system using, you know, Amory Lovin's integrated design principles? Yeah, there's lots of ways to, to take a step back and actually rethink rather than just putting in another air conditioner or cooling system with refrigerant. I think things like cooling as a service or space as a service are really important concepts because it puts the onus on the company delivering the service to have it absolutely running as well as possible. That's both from the refrigerants being used to the, the equipment being used. And yeah, that's where the type of tools, you know, both from Teal and also Viridian, you know, makes sense because they're supporting a service provider. You have to be as absolutely efficient, cost-effective as possible. That type of framework, I think, is, is one of the best things we can do going forward as well. Rethinking the need for cooling and then optimizing it you know, using you know, as-a-service type delivery. That's very interesting. We are coming to the end of the podcast, so I'm going to ask you, are you going to focus your business on the European Union or, or Singapore or a bit of both? So at the moment, we're looking at Europe and, and also Southeast Asia. Europe, perhaps a little bit more for, let's say, appliance-related work and Southeast Asia across both, including training and, and capability building. In the absence of, say, regulation in Southeast Asia, I think there's a little bit more groundwork that needs to be done, but it's certainly where the, the bulk of the challenge lies. It's certainly the, the largest growth market for cooling equipment, so there's a certain urgency around that. So yes, we're, we're focusing on both those, those regions at the moment. And I find it surprising that there's so many companies who are building smart energy efficiency solutions in Singapore, right? I mean, it's, such, as you said, a very compact place. Just some final thoughts on why it has attracted so many entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, from my own experience, it's a great business environment. Yeah, it's very uh, transparent, fluid. It's easy to get your head around how things work. Even as I, I arrived there, I didn't know anyone or, you know, <laughs> uh, had no network there at all, but it was a great place to start building up a network, you know, met people like Ken Hickson and others who were very active in this industry. So for me, that was a great place to start. And I think that works for, for lots of other people. In the broader sense, I think people look at the building industry and you look at the number of buildings and the amount of energy that's consumed. And on paper, it's a bit of a no-brainer. You think, okay, there has to be fixes. There's so many buildings out there and we know that Traditionally, they're not run at optimum, but there's also lots of challenges. Once you start to dig into that sector, you've got lots of layers of different uh, contractors and stakeholders, and it, it's very difficult to navigate a bit of a trap 
there's a bit of a technology first approach and, and we were perhaps guilty of that as well as thinking that tech on its own is going to solve the problems whether it's energy or controls optimization and, and it's really the case it, it really needs to be a people first people orientated approach and then finding the right technology fit to deliver you know, the right insights to the right people and I, and I still believe that and you can do that better as an independent if you've written your own software and that's the only piece of that's the technology stack you've got then you're kind of forced to try and even if it's a round hole you, you're trying to sort of squeeze that that square peg in and, and I think sometimes that's at the detriment of of some of the building owners you know and also you know we're ending up with these vertical silos rather than these what we really need is a horizontal data layer to really serve the building operators and all the different stakeholders. So it's, it's a really complex space. It's, it's interesting because most investors understand software. They understand software as a service, subscription models. You've got lots of buildings. You can kind of sell that idea quite easily, but it's it's a little bit more challenging to actually make it effective, to, to actually get uh, significant results out the other end. It's It can be done, but it's, it's perhaps not as easy as it appears at the outset for those coming in from outside the industry. Thank you very much. I want to wish you the very best in your journey with this new company. But before you go, is there any last thoughts that you want to leave for our audience today? Perhaps one, if we're talking about refrigerants, while it's a big challenge and maybe one that most people aren't aware of is everybody that is a consumer can still make a difference. So even if you're looking to buy a new air conditioner, refrigerator, or even a new vehicle, then you can make a decision based around you know what refrigerants inside it's something that all of us can play a part in I think if there's enough consumer pressure can also help you know solve this particular climate problem as well so you know and encourage everybody to, to go in perhaps ask those questions and do a little bit more homework if you need assistance by, by all means i'm happy to, to offer uh, advice as well where where i can we can all make a difference when it comes to refrigerants we can all make a difference when it comes to the climate crisis as consumers absolutely that's a very uplifting way to end the podcast. Thank you very much, Adrian Bookmanis. And thanks again for uh, the opportunity and, and having me on today. Thank you. Hi, this is Adrian Bookmanis from Meridian Refrigerant Management, your guest for today. We provide a outsourced refrigerant management service on a monthly basis. It's like an accounting service, but for refrigerants, and it saves costs not just on the refrigerants, but also on energy. It lowers risk and improves safety and also the environment. We have experience in the cooling sector across over 10 years. We've worked across multiple continents, and we work with companies of all sizes, big and small. And you can find out more on our website, viridianrm.com, our LinkedIn pages, or you can just Google Virginia Refrigerant Management. We look forward to welcoming you and helping where we can. Thank you.